All right, as most of you have caught on to for these four weeks, we're doing something a little different from what we usually do. Uh, Typically, the preacher's job on Sunday morning is to open one particular text of the scriptures with you, explain to you what that text means, and then proclaim its meaning for your life. And that might answer some questions that you have or speak to some things that you're going through or give you some guidance in a situation that you're about to face. And what we've been doing these last four weeks is taking that and essentially approaching it from the opposite angle, starting with the questions and then moving to what does the scripture say about these questions. And today's question, you saw it on the cover of the bulletin, is if I'm failing Jesus so often, am I really even a Christian? We ask that because there are many who are asking it. And some of you even said to me this morning, I I need this. I'm looking forward to hearing this. And it's for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, You're probably aware that destructive and enslaving habits like pornography and self-harm and eating disorders and many other things are even more and more common with each passing year. And that means there are many Christians who are suffering with these kinds of ongoing sins in their lives. And when you have something like that that you are trying to kick, and it's not working, you're not able to kick it, sometimes that can cause doubt in your soul. It causes you to say, well, if if I'm having so much trouble quitting this thing, is this really even real? Am I really even a believer in Jesus? That's not the only reason people ask that question, but it's one reason people doubt and ask sometimes. Many others as well. You might, like me, uh, be really uncertain as to what was going on the day that you were converted. If I had to guess a day that I was converted to Jesus, it would be an altar call that I answered at a summer camp when I was 12 years old. However, today I do not know the name of a single other person who was in the room who I could go and ask what actually happened. It was very emotional. I remember everyone getting up and I went forward. I don't remember a word that the preacher said. And then I remember being at the altar and praying and I remember just one or two words of what I said. Did I understand the gospel that day? I really don't know. And I don't have anyone I can go and talk to and even ask what was preached that day because I was so young. And so for my life, there were years where I was 16, 17, 18, 19, looking back on that and wondering, like, did I, did I really come to Christ then? Was that, am I really even a Christian today? I know I want to follow Jesus today. And, and it's almost like this catch-22 of like, well, if I don't know if I am or not, can I become one? Or you just get so confused and your mind can start tying pretzel knots in there. Uh, I know this much. At some point along the way, I was converted and I love my Jesus today. But when was it? I don't know. Right? And if that's your story as well, I wonder if Satan sometimes hits you with doubts as well to say, well, if I don't know exactly when, do I even know that I really am a Christian? Others of us are looking for wonderful spiritual experiences to confirm our faith. There are entire traditions that teach if you aren't slain in the Spirit and aren't speaking in tongues, then you're not really a believer and what God's doing to you isn't real. And we have kind of a commercialized version of that where there's, you know, in the modern worship music movement, uh, a sense of almost ecstasy in the music. And if you don't feel it, you kind of wonder if you're getting what these people are, are getting around you. For these reasons and many others, we can start to doubt 
Was that thing I thought God was doing in me, was it real? And on the flip side, it's possible to think you're a Christian and not be one. Some of us are deceived. Some of us are deceived by even the religious culture of Greenwood, which for many decades now has put a priority on numbers of people in the room and numbers of people being baptized, such that the gospel often isn't preached well. It's just preached in a way that gets people baptized and then sends them on their way and they're not discipled. And a a strong portion of our neighbors have gone forward to an altar call somewhere, been baptized somewhere, and it has had no change in meaning for their life. Their life has been exactly the same way. And they believe that they are Christians. Many ways we can become deceived. Uh, it's also possible that you can hear the gospel preached very well and clearly for your whole childhood, for adult years, and it just never, never click. You can know that Jesus is God and that he's the Savior of the world and that all have sinned. But just never make the leap to realizing that means that I have sinned. And it means that I will be judged forever without Jesus. And that means that I need Jesus to be my Savior. You can hear it over and over and it just never click. And so what we need is for the Spirit to assure us. And that is what God wants for you. He wants everyone in this room to, to walk out today a hundred percent confident, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, or a hundred percent confident, I am not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not, he wants to call you to come to him. That is actually the reason that the book of First John was written. Uh, he writes in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the last verse under the first heading today. His purpose for writing is that if you believe in Jesus, he wants you to know that you believe in Jesus and that you have eternal life. He does not want you wondering or doubting. And so he repeats throughout his letter four different marks of genuine Christian faith. That's why there are so many texts today, because he repeats himself over and over again. Marks that if you can look at and say, okay, these things are real in my life, you can be confident that the work that God is doing in your heart is real. There are also marks that work in the other direction. Marks that you can look at and say, okay, if these things aren't happening in my life, I'm one of those deceived people. I'm one of those people that thinks he's a believer, but is not. And he wants you to have that confidence so you can either walk out confident today and not worry, or so that you can come to Jesus in faith and be saved. So we're going to devote this whole morning to looking at these four marks, evaluating our lives, and just asking, am I really a believer in Jesus Christ? Let's look at the first one first. Four questions we can ask to confirm, is my faith in Jesus real or not? First one. Very simply, do I believe in Jesus? Now, this is perhaps more specific than the question lets on because people all over the world would say, I believe in Jesus, and they, of course, mean whatever they believe about Jesus, they believe it. So maybe the better question is, what do you believe about Jesus? 
Or do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Is the Jesus you feel like you are coming to the same Jesus as is presented in the Bible? Christians are people who are defined by our trust in our Christ. And so it makes sense that the first question you would want to ask is, what do I really believe about Jesus, the central figure of our faith? And so John writes about two or maybe even three times as many verses as I have quoted here. He says things like this. 1 John 2, 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Or in 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And then, as I read a moment ago, 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, so he draws the line clearly there, right? Earnest faith in Jesus Christ as he is described in the Bible. That's one of the marks of the Christian faith. He makes that line because even in the first century, there were many who were proclaiming false things about Jesus, even in the church. And since the first century all the way to today, the thing that has made us different from every other religion in the world and the thing that separates us from every cult that claims to be part of the church but is not is what we believe about Jesus Christ. So he draws these lines against the things people were saying in that day. Some were denying that Jesus was really God. Others were denying that he was really the Messiah of the Old Testament or the Christ figure of the Old Testament. And others were denying that he was really a man. They were teaching it was an illusion. He just looked like a man and he wasn't really a man. And so John, writing against all of these, says, No, the one who believes in the name of the Son as he's presented in the Scriptures, that's the one that has eternal life. The same issues are really at play today. Many people in our land would say they believe Jesus was a real person, and they think fondly of him. But we cannot seem to agree about who he really was. I'll give you an example. I was, when we first moved here, I was walking through a Sam's warehouse. Uh, we were trying to decide, like, do we need a Sam's membership now that we live near a Sam's? And we concluded we did not, but a month ago we came crawling back and said, yes, actually, we do need a Sam's membership. So now we have one. But four years ago, at the time we said no, we're walking through there trying to figure out if we want to have all this stuff, we want to do the thing. And, and there, you know, there's that book section where there's all these, like, impulse buy books that you never planned to buy, but you're like, ooh, that looks good. There was one, and it was called uh, What Jesus Means to Me. And it was a news anchor, like a Katie Couric type person, who had gone to a number of celebrities, maybe Oprah, LeBron Bron James, or people like that, and just did a number of interviews, maybe a dozen interviews, asking them, uh, what does Jesus mean to you? Who is he to you? And, and what do you believe about him? And they all had these very different takes on who he was. They all spoke highly of him, 
But one would say, yeah, he was a good moral teacher and his morals were good. And then, and then the next would say something else. And there, there are many out there who today would say he was not even a good moral teacher, but that his ways are not good. Uh, there was not, though, to my recollection, anyone saying he was the divine son of God who died and rose from the dead to pay for the sins of his people. Nobody's saying this. Because there is kind of this nebulous affection for Jesus out there, but very few who believe what the scriptures really say about him. And so my first question for you has to be, what what do you believe about him? Uh, Many of us build our beliefs based on our feelings about him, our intuition. You know, I feel like he is probably this or probably that. Then, though, there's what he says. He says that he was both God and man. He calls himself, uh, I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Using God's divine name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. Saying he's God. And then he calls himself the, the son of man. So he's God and he's man. Do you believe that about him? He says, behold, I died and I am alive forevermore. Those are his words. So he says that he died and he rose from the dead. Do you believe that about him? Uh, He says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So he says that he is the one who died to pay for sin so that those who believe in him can be saved from their sin and not perish but have life forever. Do Do you believe that about him? He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, that's God's house in heaven, and I am going there to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you can be also. So he says that he is in heaven, getting heaven ready for us. And then he says, behold, I am coming soon. And he says, I bring my recompense with me, meaning that when I come, I will be the judge of the earth and I will give to everyone exactly what they deserve. To all of my people who trust me, I will give life forevermore and resurrection from the dead. And to all those who will not come to me, I will judge forever. I will return with a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth with which I will strike down the nations with my word. Do you believe that about him? Do you believe he's coming and he will be the judge of the earth? when he comes. These are the things that Jesus says about himself. And so when John says that the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, the one who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, or whoever confesses the Son has the Father, these are the things he means, the things that the scriptures say about Jesus and the things that Jesus says in the scriptures about himself. Do you believe those things. So we get two words in those verses about that belief, because it's not enough just to intellectually believe these things are true. It's not enough to say, okay, that's true, got it. Uh, The two words we have are faith and confession. Uh, You see the word believe a few times in those verses. Uh, you may be curious to know the word belief and faith in the same Greek word in the scripture. So whenever you see belief, it means faith. Whenever you see faith, it means to believe. It's the same word. 
so belief or faith being one of the words. And then you see like in 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what do those two words mean? Well, to believe or to have faith, it means more than just to believe something is factual. Uh, it's a little more like if you have confidence in a person and you say to that person, I believe in you. Right? You would use the word that way to express your confidence in them. Uh, it is not just saying it's true, but, but clinging to it as true. Saying essentially, Jesus, I don't just believe what you say about you. I believe what you say about me, that I am a sinner and I'm in need of forgiveness for my sins. And so believing these things are true, but holding on to them, saying essentially, without these things being true, I'm a goner. Right. I'll be judged forever because I have sinned before God. Not just what we would call belief, but, but relying on it to be true. Putting your faith in these things. And that's why we say things like believe in Jesus and not just believe Jesus. Or the old scriptures would say believe unto Jesus even. That's faith. It's trusting in him and saying not only do I believe you, that you are what you say you are, but I need you to be what you say you are. The other word is confess. And confession essentially means to agree with something that's already been said. So something else gets said and you say, I agree with that. Uh, so in a courtroom... Someone may be charged with three charges, and if they confess, they're saying, I agree, I did that, right? So agreeing with what's already been said. Uh, our church has a confession of faith. Somebody else wrote it. I don't know who wrote it, uh, but someone wrote it, and lots of churches believe in it, and our members all look at that written confession of faith, and we say, I agree, right? So when you say, I agree, the word for that is to confess, and that is why it is so important that we must believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. Because God says, this is true. And then we respond, yes, we receive it. We believe it, right? That's confession. Believing and agreeing with what God has said about his son. Believing and agreeing with what God has already said in the scriptures. So we are not making these beliefs up. We're not following our heart and saying, I feel like it's probably this. That's not a confession of anything. We are following the word that has already been written, looking at it and saying, I agree. And so I ask you, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe the things I said earlier that he says about himself? Do you stake your whole life on that being true? That's faith. If you're willing to receive his word and stake everything on it being true. So there's the first question. Do I believe in Jesus? Now, if you believe him and he says he is Lord of all creation, then it would make sense that you would, you would do what he says. And so the second question is, do I obey Jesus. Several scriptures for this. First, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Right? So walking in the light, walking in the dark, that's the things that bad people do in the dark. Right? That's why we do our bad things when no one's looking. If we're walking in the light as if God is watching, accountable to him, we know we have fellowship with him. He circles back to this in chapter 2. And by this we know that we've come to him. If we keep his commandments, you see that? We know that we've come to him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So one of those marks of if you're really in him, if you're really one of his, is walking the way he walked and walking in obedience to him. He comes back a few verses later in verse 29 and says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, a mark of those who have been born of God. They practice righteousness. He comes back again in chapter 3, starting in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And I'll skip down to verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then in chapter 3, verse 24... Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given to us. So you see what I mean about how he just keeps going back to these themes over and over again in the letter? This is his point. He wants people to be sure. And he does not want us to miss that God's people are marked by an obedience to Jesus and by imitating Jesus. If you're following Jesus, generally, you're obeying God's commands like Jesus did. That's a mark of the Christian life. We do not expect sinless perfection, and we'll get to why later. There's another verse even in this letter that says, no, no one is like that. But generally, we say, I follow his ways. I do what he says. I'm living Like him, I'm obeying God the way that he obeyed God. Two different pictures for this we get. One is obedience, obeying the commandments. And the other one is imitating Jesus. We're we're imitating, we're walking in the same way that he walked. So one way you could frame this for yourself is, you know, generally, do, do I obey Jesus' commands? You could look at this a lot like the way we look at our kids. If you've ever been a teacher, if you've ever taught children's church, you've ever been a parent, you know that no child is sinless, right? Every child disobeys their parents and does the wrong thing sometimes. And yet still, there are good kids and there are bad kids, aren't there? Right? There are kids who are generally obedient and generally pleasant to work with in the classroom or in the home. And then there are kids who are just rebellious, And and you can take that and track that to adulthood and even in following Jesus and say, okay, none of us are without sin, right? We all sin. But, But generally, 
Am I, am I obedient to Jesus? Do I, do, I, do I love him and do I walk in his ways? Or am I like that kid in class that just blatantly disregards the rules and doesn't really care about anything? Which kind of Christian am I, you might ask yourself. Jesus says of some, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he is speaking to those who call themselves Christians but do not walk in Jesus' ways. He says to them in another place, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? You see the, the plain contradiction, right? To have Jesus as Lord in life and yet not to be doing anything that he says. Well, you're showing that Jesus is not Lord in your life. So what would that look like in real life? Well, uh, it would be generally over the course of things, right? Don't pick on yourself in one area that you're bad at, but, you know, look at the whole course of life. Am I growing in obedience to him inside and out? The, the scriptures say, blessed is the one who his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So part of this is just loving his ways so much. So one, one thing you can add, do, do I love his ways and commands more than I loved his commands five years ago and more than I did when I came to Christ? Uh, can you track progress over your life? Can you say, uh, yeah, I'm a little more holy than I was three years ago, five years ago. The Lord is changing me slowly but surely. That progress ought to look a little bit like a stock market curve looks. You got your peaks and you got your dips. If you ever look at the NASDAQ or whatever stock that you decided to buy, right? You got your ups and your downs. But the general trend over 100 years is upward, right? We had the depression in the 30s. We've had recessions. We've had roaring bull economies. There has been ups and there has been downs. But we are a much wealthier nation than we were 100 years ago, right? The, the, the track is in one direction. As you look at your life, you'll find the same thing. You've had days where you really did the right thing. And sometimes it feels like three steps forward, two steps back, right? You have days that are dips as well. But over the course of years since you've come to Christ, has there been notable change? Another analogy for this might be the, the weather between February and, say, June. I have bad news, everybody. February is coming. And when we do, it'll be cold, right? But there will be some days that are colder than others, right? It goes up and down. And every day we'll have a high and we'll have a low. And there will be some of those strange days where the low is higher than the high was. And every once in a while that happens. But you get that pattern of up and down and then the the heat waves come and then the, the cold snaps come and right there's up and there's down and you almost don't even know what's going on it gets a little disorienting but it, each time the warm snaps get a little warmer and the cold snaps get a little warmer as well and then March and April come and the warm days are even warmer and the cold days are also a little warmer and you still have your up and down right but if you get to May and early June and it still feels like February Something's wrong, right? 
Spring didn't come. What's wrong, right? So, or maybe you don't know where you live, right? You're expecting Florida and you live in Indiana or something, right? So something is wrong if the general trend doesn't go upward. And in the same way, if you're looking at decades of walking with Jesus and you're saying, okay, I understand it was February when I came to Christ, but it still feels like February today, something's wrong, right? Maybe spring never came, right? Because there should be a measurable change between the two. So that's obedience. Be careful not to pick on the one thing you're bad at when you measure that. Well, we all love to do that, right? I'm bad at this one thing, so I'm going to focus on this and define my whole spiritual life on that. Don't, don't do that. Uh, th- that's one way of looking at this. The other way John gives us is in imitating. Whoever walks with Jesus ought to walk in the same way that he walked. The scriptures say this in other places. Those of us that are destined for heaven, uh, Romans 8 says, are being conformed into the image of Christ. That means that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And God is doing that work in you. And so you should see in your efforts to walk in holiness and righteousness, in your efforts to obey God as Jesus obeyed God when he was on the earth, you should see yourself looking more and more like him in obedience. You're never going to be just like him because you're not him, but you should see yourself looking more and more like him. I might give you an analogy for this too. If we're all art students, and it's art class here, uh, and today's assignment is uh, art teacher Dave is going to put a painting of the Mona Lisa up here, a print of the Mona Lisa. We can't afford the real thing. I'm sorry. We got a print of the Mona Lisa here. And your job is to, to imitate it, right? We're all here today making our paintings that are supposed to look like the Mona Lisa. No one's painting is going to look exactly like the Mona Lisa, right? Because you're not Leonardo. But we should be able to look at them and say, oh yeah, that's the Mona Lisa, right? It should be recognizable, And in the same way, as people look at you, the ones that know you, they know that you're not Jesus, right? You're not perfect like he is. But those that know you over years, do do they see Christ's character in you? Do they say he's becoming more like Christ? Do they see the virtues and do they see holiness? Do they see love for others and love for God and love for God's commands growing in you? That's the difference between a student who is earnestly trying to paint the Mona Lisa and it looks like Mona Lisa, and then there's always that one guy in the corner that just paints a waterfall instead, right? Like like some people just aren't painting the right thing. Well, which one are you painting? Are, are, Are you striving to be like Jesus and, of course, imperfect in it? Or are you the kid in class who's just painting a waterfall because that's what I feel like painting today? This is very important because there are so many people in our suburb here. Uh, It's kind of a unique suburb. There's still a whole lot of churches around. The gospel is preached readily all over. Uh, But there are so many who have heard the gospel, uh, responded to it in some kind of outward way, think that they are believers in Jesus, but it has not changed their life at all. They don't regularly go to church. They do not live the Christian life. They don't read their scriptures. There's just no mark in their lives that anything happened 
that changed them when they came forward. And John's words here tell us we need to be scared for those people. Those people are our neighbors, and many of them believe that they are Christians. It is on us to bring the gospel to them and show them that they are not. Now, part of why I say that is because maybe, maybe that's you and you're here today. Maybe you're looking at your life and saying, well, there wasn't actually ever a change. Like, I just believed it, and that was that, all right? And if that's you, look over John's words and let his words convince you it must bring a real change in your life. So I ask, are you more like Jesus than you used to be? Are you generally obedient to his commands? Do you love his commands? Are you striving to follow him? Third question. Do I confess my sins to God? Now, earlier we were talking about obedience, right? And we said, but everybody still sins, right? So now, if we believe that Jesus is Lord and we are trying to follow in his ways and we are not perfect and so we still sin, now the question is, how do you handle that? What do you do when someone shows you that you've done wrong or the scriptures show you that you've done wrong or you just realize and remember that you've done wrong? John speaks to this. I only put one in here that's really so clear. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's very important because some of those verses earlier, if if you don't read them right, you can start to think that sinlessness is the mark of a Christian, right? Not general obedience, but I've got to be sinless if I'm a Christian, And we read in those words, sinlessness is not the mark of a Christian. Sinlessness is the mark of a liar because nobody is sinless. And so if you think of yourself as a person who doesn't have anything that you need to be forgiven of, you've deceived yourself. If you think of yourself as the kind of person who doesn't sin anymore because you've become really righteous, you haven't become really righteous. You you have deceived yourself. So the question here is, what do you do when you realize that you have sinned? Well, Psalm 32 says, To God, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity, and you forgave me the iniquity of my transgression. That's to say you looked up to God, and you said, God, I know that you know I did this. I'm going to confess to you that I did this. I'm going to agree with you. You already say I did this because you saw it. You already say this is wrong. And now I'm going to say I agree. I confess. I did that and it was wrong. When that happens, he forgives us the iniquity of our sins. Proverbs 28 says, Whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. And Jesus knows that we will need to do this a lot because when he teaches us a pattern for regular prayer, the Lord's Prayer, a lot of us know it, one of the key lines is there is, Lord, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He knew we would keep on sinning. He knew we would keep on sinning against each other and would have to forgive each other. And so what do we do with them? We take them to him regularly and say, Lord, I did this. It was wrong. Would you forgive me? 
Uh, this is why we do this every Sunday. We have a moment where we confess our sins to God. And uh, we do that because we believe God is meeting here. We want to have things just right with him before he comes and meets with us. Uh, this is why I think it's a very good idea if, if you're a daily Bible reader, and I hope you are, you have a daily prayer time, I hope you do. Uh, one of the sweetest things you can do during that daily prayer time is just go through the last 24 hours and just call to mind the ways that you sinned against God and just confess them to him. And, and it's the most incredible thing. I mean, you're there in prayer and you confess your sins to him and he doesn't like, oh, you did that? I'm out of here. Like he doesn't, he, it amazes me. He doesn't do that. No, he draws closer and he says, I forgive you. You're mine. So, because we trust in God's mercy, that's how Christians handle our sin. Now, some of us are uncomfortable with that. And if I'm honest, I think the reason a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with that is because that's what the Catholics do, right? And we we don't want to fall down a road that they've fallen down. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, in the Catholic Church, uh, there is a tradition of confession of sin. It's different from what we do. Uh, There would be a booth like maybe over there in the sanctuary, and it'd have two doors, and you would go in one, and the priest would be in the other, and there's kind of a screen between you, so the priest can hear you, but they can't see who you are. That way you can really share all your dark secrets. You don't have to worry about them going and telling the police, and so you, the person goes in there and says, uh, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned, and then they tell the priest all their, all their sins since the last time they had confession. Uh, just like we would do to, to God, right, except they're doing it to a priest, And then the priest says back to them something like, I forgive you, my child, go in peace. He pronounces, they call it absolution or forgiveness. And the person walks out saying, okay, the priest forgave me, and so I'm good. The difference between that and what we do is it puts a human priest in the place of of Jesus, who is God and man. Scriptures say who can forgive sins but God alone, right? It's not that man cannot, it's that the person has to be God, and only one person ever was God, and that was Jesus. Only Jesus can stand between you and the Father, hear your confession of sin, and say, don't worry about it, you're good. My blood pays for that sin. He can do that because he shed the blood to prove it. A man with a special vestment and hat cannot do that, because he did not shed his blood to offer that forgiveness. And so we go instead, not to the priest, you don't come to me and and confess your sins to me. We go instead right to Jesus, right to God. And we say, Father, this is what I've done. Will you forgive me? And then we just bask in his forgiveness. That's how Christians handle our sin. Many other ways you might be tempted to handle your sin. Uh, denial is one, uh, right? It, it would be, my life was better when I didn't know I did that. I wish I hadn't done that. And so I'm just kind of denying that that is real. Someone is trying to point it out to me and I don't want to have done that. And so I'm trying to work any calculation that I can to tell me that I didn't do that thing or that that thing was really not such a big deal because I don't want to face the fact that I did that thing, right? That's denial, and Christians don't do that. We look right at the thing. We say, Father, I did that. Will you forgive me? Another way we might be tempted to handle it is despair. 
despair just sinks and says, God will never receive. Look at what I've done, right? I mean, I mean he'll, he'll forgive other people. He won't forgive me, right? And so it just, it sulks. It, 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 it sometimes even gets depressed over despair. Uh, sometimes despair is the root of real depression. Uh, despair understands us and that we are loathsomely sinful before God. But it doesn't understand God. God is merciful. And so we turn from despair and say, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm filthy before God. But he is merciful and he will receive me. And so we turn back to him and we confess our sins to him. So I ask you then, third question, do, do you confess your sins to God? How do you handle it when you sin? When someone points out that you've done wrong, how do you react to that? Are you glad to know you've done wrong so you can bring that to God, or do you bite back at that person? When the Lord convicts you of sin, when the Scriptures convict you of sin, how do you respond to that? How do you handle your sin? Do you weigh seriously your own sin and also the mercies of God and go to Him and confess your sins? Oh, I hope you do. All right, fourth and last question. We'll follow the logic again. If it starts with believing Jesus... And he says he is Lord, and so we obey him because we believe him. And his second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourselves, right? Love one another. One big mark of an earnest Christian is love for the church. And so the last question is, do I love the church? I'll read a few verses about this. We'll go first to chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother... Is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see the clear dichotomy there? Love for a brother, walking in the light. Hatred for a brother, walking in the darkness. And we go into verse 10. I'm not sure what chapter that is there. By this it is evident who are the children of God and the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's the part we read earlier. And now we add a little to it. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he goes into Cain and Abel. And I'm going to skip over to verse 15 on the next page. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Important to note, that's a present tense verb, right? It's not that no one who has ever committed murder can have eternal life. No one who is committing murder has eternal life. Right, so if you're, if you're still walking in that life, you can't walk in that and have eternal life. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Well, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So now we're talking about sacrificial acts done for brothers and sisters. That's a mark of a Christian. And lastly, this mark is shown by being part of the church family. He says in 2.19 about people who had left, no longer a part of a church, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So he's saying very starkly there that people who have left the church, the reason they left is because they were never really a part of the church. If they had been, they would, they would have stayed in. We show our allegiance with our feet. So that last mark we look at on earnest Christian believers is, is love for the church. This shows itself concretely in being part of a church, gathering with them, right? If you love somebody, you love to be with them. It shows itself in an affection of the heart, right? Feelings that just say, these people are my people. I just, I know they're not perfect, but I love the church. And it shows itself concretely in sacrificial actions for other believers and for the institution of the church. And so the scriptures speak of all sorts of things like this. The the psalmist writes at one point, as for the saints, that is the the believers, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Like his heart just bursts with love and affection for fellow Christians. Uh, Jesus at one point uh, tells a parable where he separates the goats and the sheep from each other. This is the real believers from the not real believers, right? And he, and he tells the sheep, come and enter into my happiness. And he tells the goats, away with you. I never knew you. And they're like, well, how did you know? And he says, well, uh, to the sheep, to the good ones, he says, I was hungry and you fed me and I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and all these sacrificial things they did. And they're like, when did we ever do that for you? And he said, well, when you did this for even the least of my brothers, you did it for me. And he says the opposite to the goats. Because uh, love for each other is such a mark of Christian faith that when Jesus comes to separate out the wheat from the tares, he can do it just by looking at who loves their brothers and who doesn't love their brothers. Who's the kind of person who would be willing to go and give someone a ride to church and who's not? Who's the kind of person that would help a brother in need and who is not? And then he says, not only will I know who my real disciples are by whether you love each other, but the world will know that too. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Or as the old song says, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. Paul will write this in Galatians. He says the only thing that counts is faith working itself out through love. Same logic John's got here, right? What do we really believe about Jesus? And does that work out in your love for other people? That's what counts. So we're marked then by love for one another. What would it look like if we didn't love each other? Well, it might look like cynicism for the church. Right? They never get anything right. I always do something wrong. It's corrupt. Right? And a lack of desire to be with the people of God out of bitterness. Or just kind of a lax view of church attendance altogether. Right? Because if you don't really love somebody, you're not really excited about going and being with them. So you might become kind of lax about going to church and being with the brothers and sisters. Uh, an attitude that doesn't care which church members are in need and who I should be praying for and who I should be taking care of. Uh, an attitude that looks at the needs of the church and we've got people in the nursery, or we need people in the nursery, we need this, we need that, and just says, ah, I don't care, somebody else can take care of that. Right? A lack of love can surface in all kinds of ways. 
But earnest love shows itself in an affection for the people, an eagerness to gather with the people you love, and a willingness to sacrifice and serve for both the people and the institution. If you want a picture of that in real life, um, just look at, look at marriage. Uh, if you have or if you were to have a spouse, uh, how would you want to be loved? How would you want them to love you? Probably you would want them to know you well enough that they know your flaws. Uh, but even though they know your flaws, they still earnestly believe that you are a gift from God and they believe that you're a gift from God. They treat you like you are a gift from God. And they love to be with you and talk with you and hear about your day. And when you need something, you know that they're there for you. And when they get a little frustrated by your flaws, you know when you're really living together, brush and shoulders, our flaws irritate each other. They might really get frustrated. But that is not the, the core thing in their heart, the overarching feeling they have about you. The overarching feeling they have is that they love you. Well, the reason you want to be loved like that by a spouse is because that's how Christ loves his church. Right? He, he knows us and he knows our flaws. And yet he sees us as a gift given to him by his heavenly father and says, I receive them as my own flaws and I delight in them. And sometimes the things we do wrong affect him. And sometimes I'm sure he gets frustrated. We saw him get frustrated when he walked the earth with his disciples sometimes. But that's not the overriding heart, right? In his heart, he's gentle and lowly and the core of his feelings about us are affection for us. And he wasn't just willing to sacrifice a little for us here and there. Uh, he was willing to give his whole life for us. That's the kind of love he had for the church. And that's the kind of love he calls us to for each other. Love that says, I know you guys aren't perfect, right? But be all our gift from God. And I, and I receive you and I love you with all the affection in my heart. A love that says, I see where this church has needs, and I see that there are people in this church that has, have needs, and I'm going to be there for them, and I'm going to pray for them. A love that says, my heart is full of affection for these people. That's the sort of love that marks earnest Christians. And so my last question then is, do you love the church with your heart and with your actions? So those are the tests that John gives us. And I said earlier, he wants you walking out sure, right? He wants you to know where you are. So, so what do you really believe about Jesus? Do you obey him more and more as time goes on? Uh, how do you handle your sin? Do you confess it to God or do you try to hide it or get despairing? Or how do you handle that? And do you, do you love the church? If you can give an imperfect but earnest yes to all those. You can see like, okay, I don't do any of these perfectly. Well, I don't do the last three perfectly, but I can see how God is working them in me and they are real factors that are marking my life. John wants you, the spirit who inspired John wants you, and I want you to walk out of here today confident. Like the Lord just used those texts to assure me that my faith is, is real and I would not steal one bit of that confidence from you. I want you to have every single bit of it. That's why we spent so much time in this today. Others of you would give mixed answers, like not just imperfect, but 
a little too mixed. And it's different depending on which of the marks it is. If, if it's the first mark, if it's your belief in Jesus, you're looking at this and saying, I believe some of those things in the scripture about him, but not all of the things in the scripture about him. I'm calling you to faith in Jesus as he is. Trust in him and find yourself forgiven of your sins. But what about those of you who are like, yeah, I believe what the Bible says about Jesus, but there are some glaring problems in those other three. Like, where do we sit now? Well, don't despair. You, you may well be an earnest believer in Jesus. It may be that you're young and immature in your faith. It takes time for these things to develop. It may be that you were not discipled well when you came to Christ. You had nobody to guide you, and so you've kind of walked aimlessly as a Christian through your life. There may be a number of reasons. But the hard side of this here is that if you can't answer those confidently with a yes, you can't be sure that you're really a Christian. So what do you do? Right? If there's no assurance, the marks aren't there, what do you do? Well, examine your beliefs in Jesus. Say, do I really believe this stuff? Do I really look to him for forgiveness of my sins? And then seek those marks. Because I'm not telling you you're not a believer. I don't know if you're a believer or not. But wouldn't you like to have all those marks there and know for sure? If your faith is in him and you are seeking obedience to him, he will grow you. He will work these things in you. And then when you start to change, you'll be able to look back and say, I couldn't have done that. Right? That was God who did that in me. The way the assured person next to you got to spend this sermon saying, it was God who worked that in me. It's, it's God who made me obedient and loving to the church, and it's God who taught me to confess my sins to him. So that's you. I call you to faith in Jesus. I call you to examine that faith in Jesus. And I call you, with God's help, seek all of these marks. If you leave here uncertain today, talk to me, talk to a deacon, talk to somebody. Uh, John wants everybody to have certainty. And lastly, if your answer to all these is a flat no, right? If you're saying, Dave, I never even heard some of that stuff you said about Jesus. He died and rose from the dead. Uh, what I want to call you to is, is him. He will work the other things in you, right? You will have to do some work to do it. He will work them in you. Uh, but Come to this Jesus. Come to him. He has died. He has risen. He is in heaven. He is coming back, and he will come back for his people. So I plead with you, come to him and put your faith in him. Let's pray together.